Jeremiah chapter 5. If you'd turn there in your Bibles. Well, Amos and Josiah are back from Israel, and so we're, yes, we're so glad you guys are home. And next Wednesday, because it's Thanksgiving weekend, and typically uh, that Wednesday before Thanksgiving is, is small, a lot of people travel, we're not going to be having our Wednesday night service next week, but the following Wednesday, uh, the guys are going to share. So we'll just give them the Wednesday night and they could share, we could ask them questions about their time away in Israel and, and hopefully really glean from that. Father, we thank you for that short time of worship and we pray, Father, that we would, that we would be a people who get it especially as we're going through Jeremiah and we're seeing a people who did not get it. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who uh, aren't just simply going through the motions, but we truly believe that what we're doing is uh, biblically true and honoring to you, Lord. So we ask, Father, that you would teach us tonight as we continue our study through Jeremiah. Bless our time. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, <clears throat> Tracy and I, when we were having our coffee, is this on? Is this loud enough? I must have a... Um, but uh, Tracy was just sharing. She says, can I share some of my notes of what I've gleaned from the past two weeks of Jeremiah. And so I said, sure, you know. And so she had her notepad there, and she was just sharing different things. And Tracy said, you know, as you go through the book of Jeremiah, there's a lot of repetition. And there is a lot of repetition, isn't there? And in fact, because of the repetition, if we're not careful, you might begin to read and say, oh, I've heard this before. I mean, here goes the Lord again, and here goes Jeremiah again, questioning what the Lord you know, wants him to say, and here go the response of the people again. But I'll tell you, I was so blessed to hear the things that Tracy was gleaning from the past two weeks in Jeremiah. There's a lot to glean from this prophecy. I mentioned when I began the study two weeks ago the Jeremiah, in one sense, it's a hard book to follow chronologically because there doesn't really seem to be a chronological order to the book of Jeremiah. But it's very easy, in my opinion, to figure out what's happening. I mean, as you're looking at a chapter, as you're reading the text, it's very clear what's taking place, what's happening. And so once again, we read this time in chapter 5, verse 1. God says to Jeremiah, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See how, uh, see now and know. So I want you to see and I want you to know. And seek in her open places. If you could find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment or justice, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. The herd there is Jeremiah, or, or Jerusalem. says, though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. Now, when I read this, something comes to mind immediately. What comes to mind for me is I think of Abraham's conversation with the angel 
when the Lord revealed to Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember, he's concerned about Sodom because his nephew was there living in Sodom. And, and so we're familiar with that, that kind of back and forth that happened between Abraham and, and the Lord. Um, you know, if there's 50... Lord, would you destroy it if there's 50? No, if there's 50, I won't destroy it, you know. And the number finally got down to 10. And then when you read the account, you see that there wasn't, there wasn't even 10. In fact, there wasn't even 5. In fact, there wasn't even 4. <laughs> there were only 3 of them that were able to leave, knowing that from the text that Lot's wife looked back. And so it was just Lot and his two daughters and when you see what followed, you know, their escape from Sodom, you begin to wonder, were they really righteous, you know? And God is a gracious God. That's all I could say. But it reminds me of that. Uh, the Lord says to Jeremiah, I want you to go through Jerusalem, and I want you to investigate on your own. I, I believe that there are times that the Lord wants his minister to catch the vision See, guys, we're not just given a script, you know, as uh, children of God, Christians, going out with the Great Commission. Here's my script. My script is preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to all creatures, you know. I, I think that the Lord wants us to have a burden. This is why you have many times missionaries. They'll go to a specific place. They don't just look on a map and blindfold themselves with a stick pen and say, you know, da-da-da-da-da, poof, and then, okay, I guess I'm going to China, you know. No, they have a burden for a location. The Lord gives them a burden, and they have an interest for that place or for that people. And then the burden begins to build and build and build, and then, you know, the missionary goes off to the foreign land. But, you know, this could be true on a very local level as well. You know, you could have a burden for your city. You could have a burden for your neighborhood. The Lord gives you a burden. And, and he, you know, maybe he would say, go out. I want you to search. I don't want you to go down your block. I want you to see the condition of the people in your block. I want you to see, you know, maybe the shut-ins that are on your block. I want you to see the people who need me on your block. I want you to have a burden for the people on your block so that you'll pray Jeremiah and if you're praying and if you have a burden then when you go out with my message you're going to speak it with zeal and fervor and it's sad because he goes out and he begins to see and what he finds in verse 2 is that there are a lot of those who say the Lord lives now you look at that and you say what does that mean? The Lord lives. And then it goes on and says, surely they swear falsely. You know, I, I, putting it in maybe today's uh, setting, maybe it's, you know, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But it's just words. And, you know, there's that caution that if we're just sp simply speaking the words, you know, again, it could be, you know, I, I'm going to share the gospel. I just speak the gospel. I have no burden for the people that I'm sharing with. I'm not really praying for the people. I'm just kind of doing this because, you know, I'm following a script or whatever. In one sense, we're, we might be speaking the truth. If we're speaking the gospel, surely we're speaking the truth. But, but there's, it's hollow. It's, it's, we're swearing falsely in one sense. Because it's not real to us. O oh Lord, are not your eyes 
on the truth. You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to turn. He says, you have stricken them. Would you turn with me in the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews chapter 12. He has stricken them. Sometimes we can look at the Old Testament and we say, well, that was then and this is now and, you know, we're under grace. And so a lot of these things that we read in the Old Testament, they don't apply. Oh, it all applies. It all applies if we're careful students of the word. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4, look what it says there. No, I'm sorry. Let's go down to verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, sons and daughters. My son, do not despise the chastening or the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens or disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening or discipline, God deals with you as with sons and daughters. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. You know, guys, you can go back to Jeremiah. As it's pointed out, Jeremiah speaking to the Lord, you have stricken them, but they do not grieve. In one sense, maybe Jeremiah was asking, why do you even bother? I mean, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't change anything. You discipline them. You stricken them. You, 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 you warn them by sending your prophets. And then you afflict them with judgment. But it doesn't seem to affect them in any way. Why bother? Why bother? Because he's a loving father. And they're his children. And, you know, I think of, uh, you know, any loving father would discipline his children. We discipline their, our children. Why? Because we don't want them to go astray. We don't want them to be undisciplined. We don't want them to not have structure in their life. Our children never, you know, turn around and say, thank you so much, Dad, for disciplining me. I've really enjoyed this season, you know. I mean, it's, it's not something that we enjoy at the, at the time. But, but, you know, guys, when we're looking at the Father, and maybe you feel tonight, maybe you feel like, gosh, I feel like I'm kind of under the discipline of God. Well, rejoice if you're under the discipline of God. You're, you're his. If you're never disciplined by the Lord, don't rejoice. Don't find comfort in that. You need to start asking yourself, maybe I'm an illegitimate child. Maybe I'm not his. Well, back in Jeremiah, as it continues, it says, uh, but they have refused the kind of the end of toward the end of verse 3, they have refused to receive instruction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to turn. Turn back in Jeremiah to chapter 2 and verse 17. Again, there's repetition, but we could glean so much from the repetition. 
Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Have you not brought this on yourself, in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? You brought this upon yourself. Now, verse 4 of our chapter. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. I will go to the great men and speak to them, and they, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. Guys, what's happening here is Jeremiah, as he's hearing this from the Lord, he's saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The people who, who don't know the way of the Lord, they must be the, the ignorant people. They must be the unlearned people. They must be the people who somehow have, have slipped, you know, by the watchful eye of God and they haven't been instructed correctly. And, 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 and surely the great men, they know the way of the Lord. And so Jeremiah, as he's on his scavenger hunt looking for any one man, even if you could find one man who's righteous, you know, the end of verse 5, it says, But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. All of them have. Jeremiah said, maybe, maybe this is true of the ignorant people. They're the ones that are buying into idolatry. They're the ones that, that are going into these things that are so horrific in your eyes, God. But surely not the great men of God. The great men of God, the learned, they know better than this. And as he searches out Jerusalem, he finds that it's not true that they all have. You know, I would like you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. I want you to turn there because if you don't and you're not looking at the words, you're going to easily be lost in my words. Remember that Daniel was writing to the captives that Jeremiah had spoken to. And uh, in Jeremiah chapter 9, this is much later on in Daniel's life, but in verse 1 it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus, uh, that's not right, but anyway, close enough, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood, look at this, I understood by the books or the scrolls and the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. So he's reading Jeremiah. Daniel is. And he figures out, you know what, there's, there's going to be 70 years. This isn't forever. And it says that, that he would, that he is God, that he would accomplish 70 years in desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth. Sackcloth always represents repentance and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, look what he says, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned. Daniel identifies himself with his forefathers, with his fathers, with the older generation that was 
engaged in all of this idolatry. I don't think that Daniel was ever engaged in the idolatry that was taking place that we see described in, in Jeremiah's book. But he goes on, he says, we, we have done wickedly. You drop down to verse 6. We, uh, neither have we heeded your servant servants, the prophets. And he's identifying that. And, and really, that's what we see in Jeremiah chapter 5. You can turn back there. Everyone, they all have... They all have rejected the Lord. They've all broken off his yoke. They've all burst the, the bonds. What does that mean? You know, guys, God has barriers. Restraints, if you will, or, or fences would be a better thing. It's not like we're chained to a, a, you know, a lead ball or something like that. But, but the Lord has barriers. And we see this in the word of God. You know, we see it in the law, don't we? Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And you wonder, well, why? Why are the barriers there, you know? And you can say, well, God's a killjoy. He just doesn't want us to have any fun. Oh, really? Well, when, when we go out and we go beyond the, the boundaries that the Lord has set up, we always reap the consequences. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They had boundaries, didn't they? The garden was boundaries, they could go anywhere they wanted in the garden, and they could eat of any tree but one in the garden. And they had free reign in the garden. But once they stepped out of those bonds, that, that, that safe area, zone, if you will, they got into trouble. And, and we see this, you know, in our own lives, and we surely see it as we're going through Jeremiah. The people stepped out of the, the bonds. What was the bonds? The bonds were, worship no other God but me. I am your Lord. I am your God. I am your Father. They said, well, we're not, we don't like living such a restricted life. We want to worship other gods. We like the way they worship their gods. And, you know, the Lord's not going to restrain anyone. He's not going to put anyone in a you know, headlock and say, you're not going to do it. We have free will. We could do whatever we want. But we're going to reap the consequences if we don't take seriously the yoke. Remember what Jesus said about his yoke being light? <laughs> it's still a yoke, but it's light and his bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall slay them. The lion is a picture throughout the Bible of Babylon. Uh, throughout the Old Testament. The lion, the lion, Babylon, the bear, the Medes and Persians, the leopard, the Grecians. Um, you have these animals that are kind of attached to different nations. Now, here, it describes what's going to happen when the Babylonians come in. It says, therefore, the lion... From the forest shall slay them. A wolf, not a bear. I wish it was a bear because then I could say he was prophesying of something that was going to happen even beyond the Babylonians. But he says, a wolf of the desert shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces. Why? Because you're leaving your bonds. You're leaving your borders. They're here for your protection. Don't do this, the father says. This is your, um, this is what time I want you at home. This is your curfew. I want you home. 
I don't, I'm, I'm going to do it my way, Dad. I'm going to do it my way. I don't want you driving with uh, knuckleheads that uh, haven't had their license for all. Oh, Dad, I, can, I know better than you know. I'm going to do that. Have you ever, do you ever get yourself in trouble like that? I remember as a teenager making those phone calls home. And I always wanted to talk to my dad, not my mom, because I knew how she would react. And he'd say, where are you? And I'd say, you know, I'd... <laughs> I'm downtown San Diego, or I'm in La Jolla Beach, or I'm someplace, you know, and got into some trouble, and, and Dad usually would bail me out. But there were some boundaries. And if I would have just abided by the boundaries, I would have stayed safe, you know. But, but you know, so often we think that we know better. And uh, children do that, and adults do that when it comes to the Lord. It doesn't matter, Lord. I can do whatever I want. And the Lord would say, so be it. Amen. You can do whatever you want. But you have to realize that you're going to pay the consequences. You're going to reap the consequences. Again, you've brought this upon yourself. God could say, don't blame me. I didn't do this to you. You did it to yourself. You created this mess. Now you need to Man up and live with it, you know? And that's really where they were at this point in their life. It says, everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their backsliding have incre- backslidings have increased. How shall I pardon you for this? Do, do you see that? How shall I? It's not, you know... Um, it's like, how, how can I just let this go? Um, was he asking Jeremiah, how can I do this? Was he asking the people, how can I do this? It seemed like he was asking the people, how can I do this? Your children have forsaken me. See, God was saying through Jeremiah the prophet, he said, mom and dad, you disgusted by your children's behavior? Where do you think they learned it? You've set the example for them. They're following the example that you've set for them. You abandoned me. You forsook me. Don't be surprised that your children have forsaken me. Sometimes when we see our children suffering that really gets our attention because then we realize, oh man, what have we done? We have brought this thing into our house. We've allowed this thing to come in. And sometimes parents, you know, we could kind of have this, you know, rules for them, but not for me, not for us. And I'll tell you, as Christian parents, Christian homes, we need to have convictions. We need to have standards. We need to say this is, you know, as for me and my household, remember what Jeremiah or Joshua said? As for me and my ho- household, we will serve the Lord. And that needs to be the standard. This is what we're going to do. We're not going to allow that in our house. And each mother and father, they have their own convictions. They make their convictions. They stand upon their convictions. You don't like it, kids? Well, one day you'll leave and you'll have your own convictions or whatever. Isn't it interesting? I, I think of when I was growing up, um, you know, we had a small family. It was my mom and dad, my sister and I. Um, I'm the oldest, my sister is three years younger, and um, we, uh, we were able to do quite a bit. 
And as the oldest son, I was able to do quite a bit. And I know that sometimes you guys probably wonder, you know, when I talk about, you know, I started hitchhiking when I was 12, started drinking when I was 12. A lot of things started happening when I was 12. And maybe you're thinking of your 12-year-old and you're thinking, golly, I can't even imagine that happening, you know. And um, Ethan asked me one day, we are working together, and he said, uh, Papa, you know, what was the first concert you went to? And I said, well, I was 12 years old. <laughs> you know? And I told him about this, the first concert I went to and who was there. And it was in the stadium in San Diego in the 70s and, and how the Hell's Angels were there at the stadium. And some Hell's Angels were popping off, you know, across the... And all these people are running on the top tier of the stadium. And how I was so paranoid, 12 years old. I shouldn't have been there. 12 years old, as paranoid, I was convinced that we're all going to be killed by Hell's Angels. You know. Another time, you're in, my mother was watching it on television. My cousin, older cousin, brought me to the concert, but she left. Because the marijuana smoke was making her sick. So she showed up at my parents' house and she said, where is Danny? We couldn't find him. We left him there. (laughs) I'll tell you, there were times as a kid I thought, I wish I had more parameters, you know, that I would have stayed within those parameters because I found myself in places that I should not have been involved in, things I should not have been involved in. And this is true. This was true of Israel. God set parameters. God said, you worship me. God said, you drive out the other nations. You drive out these people. Why? You know, what did they do? How are they so bad? Because they will corrupt you. You will become like them. They will not become like you. You will become like them because their standard is lower than your standard. And the flesh always flows down to the lowest standard. This is why we need to be people filled with the Holy Spirit not just controlled or driven by our own flesh. Well, where did I leave off? He says, uh, look at, I guess it's the midway in verse, uh, verse 7 again. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn to those by, uh, by those that are not gods. When I fed them to the full, Then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's house. You know, guys, in the Old Testament, when you're reading the prophets many times, and it's clear as you're reading the text, that many times idolatry is likened to adultery. So the Lord will use adultery as kind of a picture of idolatry, that this is like like an unfaithfulness. It would be like a wife cheating on her husband. I use that illustration because God is the husband, Israel is the wife. And so it's like the husband, the loyal husband, Father God, is saying, you're, you're running around like a whore, Israel. You're laying down under every tree. You're doing this. And when he's saying that, it wasn't necessarily, specifically, sexual misappropriation, you know. But sin begins sin. 
And so here we see that it did lead to literal, literally sexual uh, immorality. Because look what it says, verse 8. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Man, that is a graphic picture. If you've ever been around horses, it, it's a very graphic picture. But look at, what are they? They're, they're neighing after their neighbor's wife. Then the Lord says, Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? It's a whole nation, God is saying. Go up on her walls and destroy but do not make a complete end. And here we see God's grace. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt treacherously with me, says the Lord. There's this picture of pruning. Take away their branches. What do you think of when you read that? Anything come to mind? Yeah, exactly. John chapter 15, I am the vine. Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away or lifts up. That's what it literally means. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. This is, I believe, part of the discipline are you disciplined by the Lord? You're his son. You're his daughter. Thank the Lord for that. He loves you. He doesn't let you get away with murder. That it may bear more fruit. That's, that's the reason we go through difficulties and hardships and, you know, the chastising of the Lord. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The Lord says about them, for they are not the Lord's. But they would be the Lord's if they would have abided. You know, I was talking with the Pastor Brian Williams yesterday, we went down to a pastor's meeting and we were talking and we are talking about some of the isms, you know, that come into the church and some of the isms that affect our kids or have affected our kids and, um, and, and how they could so easily be caught up in these things and, and we are talking about Calvinism and and just how, you know, it, it kind of played a trip on some of my kids, and it, and it was kind of, you know, challenging some of his kids right now. And so we're talking about that, and I was saying, you know, Brian, I used to love when Pastor Chuck would talk about his security in Christ. And he said, I am secure in Christ. Nothing, no one could snatch me out of his hand. As long as I'm abiding in Christ, I have this peace that I am secure, that I belong to him, that my salvation is sure and steadfast. And then he would have that long Pastor Chuck pause, and he'd say, but 
If I wasn't abiding in Christ, could I have that assurance and that peace? See, and it's very practical. Now, I know the Calvinists, if there's a Calvinist in here, I'm sure they're thinking of arguments that they could come up with. But the point is simply this. The proof is in the pudding. You know, we could say all day long, I belong to the Lord. I love the Lord. Oh, the Lord lives. The Lord lives, you know. But it's seen by our actions. It's seen by how we live our life, how we make our decisions. The Lord said, for they are not the Lord's. Verse 12 says, they have lied about the Lord and said, it is not he. Look what it said. Look at this. Neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. And the prophets become wind. It's like hot air. For the word is not in them. Thus says, thus shall it be done to them. Surely... Nothing, we belong to the Lord. Nothing bad is going to happen to us. Chapter 2 of Jeremiah, just jumping back a few pages, in verse 35 it says, Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you, because you say, I have not sinned. What does that remind you of? First John. You see, guys, the scripture, it's always confirming itself. And this is how we should be. We should be students of the word of God. So it doesn't matter where we're reading, where we're studying the scriptures. We're be, our mind is being drawn to other scriptures that we've read, other truths that we find in the scriptures. They had a false sense of security. Drop down to verse 18, please. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end. Here it is again, his mercy. Complete end of you. And it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? You ever feel that way? Why is he doing this to me? What have I done wrong? Why is he always on my case? Then you shall answer them. Just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in the land that is not yours. Speaking of that captivity, 70 years, as we saw in Daniel chapter 9, 70 years in captivity, 70 years. Think of that. There were people that went into captivity that never left their Babylonian captivity. They died in their captivity. There were others, you know, that could have left after the 70 years were over. You know, we have no indication that Daniel, even though he was still alive after the 70 years were completed, ever left Babylon. I mean, he continued on with the uh, Medes, you know, under that king, and seemed like he lived the rest of his lives out, life out in captivity look at verse 23 i hope you guys have read your text your homework because otherwise you're going to say well he's just skipping around he's he's skipping a lot i'm skipping a lot because there's no way i could teach every word and if i did i'm gonna i'm gonna be cheating you from some of these nuggets that i personally have found verse 23 but this people is a this 
people has a defiant and rebellious heart. Do you ever look at the scriptures and, and read something and, and just kind of pause and maybe say to the Lord in prayer, Oh Lord, show me if this is true of me. Oh Lord, I don't want this to be true of me. I don't want to be a person who has a defiant heart, who has a rebellious heart. Guys, we must be led by the Spirit. We must be yielded to the Spirit. We must be people of the Word of God. Because, and it's possible to walk with God if we're yielded to the Spirit. It's absolutely impossible if we're not walking in the Spirit. Because otherwise it's just us trying to be good people. And you know, there's a lot of people that go to a lot of churches that are going to be really, really surprised when the Lord comes back for his church and they're gone. They, that is those who have truly placed their faith in him, and they're left. They, that truly did not place their faith in them. And I think that sometimes in church, in a church environment, we could almost be self-deceived if we're not ever looking in, you know, that self-examination, seeing if we're truly in the faith. If we're not asking the question, not to someone else, but to the Lord, Lord, am I yours? Lord, do I belong to you? To ask the questions, Lord, why don't I enjoy reading your word? Why is it that I don't really like to pray? Why is it that I'm embarrassed about talking about you, Lord? I'd rather talk about anything else, anything else but you, Lord. Am I yours, Lord? Do you ever ask those questions of yourself, of the Lord, more importantly, of the Lord? I, I, I think it's healthy to do that. I think it's very healthy to do that because, you know, we're... we're there's this ebb and flow of life that's constantly changing. Last night I was up at probably two in the morning and my thoughts were just kind of going and um, and I was just kind of sitting there on the side of the bed and just saying, Lord, I, I need personal revival. I feel dry right now, Lord. Some of you might be saying, well, you just woke up. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, what else would you be feeling? But, you know, you know how it is. I mean, when you walk with the Lord, you, you know when things aren't right. You know because it's a relationship with the Lord. And so you can just feel it and thank the Lord that you can pick up on it. There's a lot of people that they just kind of, they're backsliding our backslidings, as Jeremiah mentioned in chapter 5 here, they're, they're, they just continue because there's no, there's no point of reference. There's no, well, this is how I've always been. This is just who I am. I, you know, I believe in Jesus, and, you know, I, I love the Lord, you know, when things are going well, but when things aren't going well, man, I'm shaking my fist at him because, you know, he's like the sugar daddy in the sky that's supposed to make my life perfect, you know. Answer my every wish, you know. It's like the genie in a bottle. I wish, I wish, I wish, you know. 
And the Lord wants us to have a deeper relationship with him than that. It says, they have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us not, let us now fear the Lord our God. Because listen to that. Do you ever say, you know, maybe this is another question you should ask yourself. We should ask ourselves. Do I fear God? Do I fear God more than I fear man? Do I fear God more than I fear my peers? Do I fear displeasing the Lord? See, this does not fit into modern Christianity's thinking. But this is biblical thinking. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We need to fear the Lord. There needs to be this reverence. This, he's not the you know big man upstairs. He is... He is God. He is heavenly God. He is eternal. He's outside of time and space. And, and yet he, he cares for us. Look at verse 24. It goes on. Who gives rain, both the former and the latter, in its season? He reserves for us appointed weeks of the harvest. It's almost as if the Lord's saying, guys, would you just stop and consider the fact that have I provided for you? You know, again, it's hard for us because we're not farmers. We're not agrarian people. We're not people who live off of the land. We live off of Hagen's or whatever. You know, <laughs> you know if push comes to shove, we go to the grocery store, we get what we need to get. But, but if we were like, like them at that time, dependent upon the land, we're dependent upon the good soil, we're dependent upon the rain, we're dependent upon the rain in the right season, we're dependent that the Lord... Uh, does not allow our harvest to freeze, you know, because that would just be horrible. We're dependent, we're dependent, we're dependent on the Lord keeping the locusts away. We're dependent. And you see, and, and this is why, guys, when you look at uh, the, the Old Testament, it's really apparent that harvest time was like a really happy time. That was, oh, happy days. And that's when they were, like, really partying. Because they brought in the harvest, and it's time to rejoice. It's time to have a cheerful heart. This is where we see the whole Boaz and Ruth thing. Remember, it happened at harvest time. Anyway. Let's jump down to verse 30. An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. Look at, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? And I'll tell you, this is a description of what we see in a lot of churches today. He says it's an astonishing thing. He says it's a horrible thing that the prophets, those speaking on God's behalf, they prophesy falsely. The priests, those who would serve on behalf of the people serving God. And he says, my people love it, love to have it so. There needs to be a standard.
there is a film that's come out, The Jesus Revolution. And so it's been put out by Greg Laurie, and it is a story um, about Greg Laurie and his wife Kathy, kind of a love story. So you have that aspect of the film. But it's also surrounded around uh, Calvary Chapel. So you have, um, you know, a Chuck Smith figure, actor. Though it's, um, they kind of use liberty on how they present people. And then you have Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee was a fellow who was uh, used, you know, during the Jesus movement. He was referred to as a hippie preacher came from Haight-Ashbury down to Southern California, met up with Pastor Chuck, and served there at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, for a period of time. And um, Greg Laurie, you guys know who Greg Laurie is, don't you? Harvest Christian Fellowship, which is a Calvary Chapel. Uh, well, used to be a Calvary Chapel. I don't know what they are now. I think they're, they were a Calvary and then a Southern Baptist, and then I don't know what they are. But they're... They're kind of their own entity, you know. But Greg was led to faith in Christ by Lonnie Frisbee at Greg's high school. Could you imagine a time, and I remember this when I was in high school, where people would be able to come off campus and preach to the kids, just share with the kids in the the quad or the, you know, in, in California we had big open grass areas because the you know, temperature's nice and everything. And so a lot of the kids, we had like the senior senior lawn, so you had to be a senior to sit on that lawn. And then you had the lower classmen, you know, they had the other lawn, you know. But, um, you know, he Lonnie came and he shared the gospel and Greg came forward and received Christ. And, and obviously Lonnie had such an impact upon Greg's life and, and in those early days of his walk with Jesus. And so he wanted to do this film in honor of him. And so the film's out. And um, I was talking with a, a pastor yesterday at the pastor's meeting. He was really excited about the film. And I had my reservations. I had reservations about it when I first heard about it from Shannon Lawson. She had mentioned it. And uh, my heart kind of sunk because... You know, those films like that never go well. And they, and I was concerned about it for various reasons. And I didn't like the actor that they have for Chuck Smith. And the actor they have for Lonnie Frisbee is the same actor that plays Jesus in the Chosen uh, series. Which, if you know anything about him, by the way, you guys are intelligent people. You guys are not the poor, the unlearned. The stupid folk that Jeremiah was referring to. You're like the great men, the great women. You have, you have at your fingertips knowledge. You're saying your Bible? I'm saying your phone. <laughs> Just Google something and check on it. And you can see, you can check on you know, the history of a lot of things. But you guys know that the actor of the chosen film, uh, the actor for Jesus in the chosen film, you know, he's he's not a Christian. Uh, he's a it's a kind of a Catholic mystical 
kind of thing. It's just a really thing. So he's playing Lonnie Frisbee in, in, the, in the movie. So anyway, my pastor friend was telling me about the film and everything, and he was excited about it. He says, oh, this is going to be a great tool uh, to bring people to because the gospel is presented in the film, clearly presented in the film. And I said, oh, that's good. So as we're talking, he, he's just telling me about the film, and he said, yeah, it kind of shows the tension between Pastor Chuck and Lonnie Frisbee. Now, the Jesus Movement, this is back, you know, uh, early 70s, mid-70s, that time frame. And um, so he says, uh, the movie kind of presents the, the struggle, kind of the tension between Pastor Chuck and Lonnie. And so with that, I said, oh, so they had, they, uh, that the tension was because Lonnie was um, living a homosexual life. And he said, oh, no. No, 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 not that. Just because of Lonnie's pride and everything. And I said, oh, okay. I said, did they mention that Lonnie, you know, had kind of gone back, he had come from a homosexual lifestyle from Haight-Ashbury, and then he married he was married when he was at Calvary Costa Mesa. And then, you know, he left there, went to Vineyard, left Vineyard for the same reason he left Calvary Chapel, and then kind of went back to the lifestyle. And I said, did they address, did they address that? No, they didn't even mention it. I said, well, so how did they end it? Well, they just ended it by simply saying that Lonnie faithfully served the Lord until his death. And I said, did it say that Lonnie died in his 40s from AIDS? No. And I said, brother, don't you think that there's a problem with that? I said, this is, this is part of Calvary Chapel's history. This is part, I mean, anybody that does any, any search whatsoever, they could find this out. And he goes, but yeah, but the gospel was really... And I said, but, but... I said, think of the scenario. You take someone, you take people, or you bring the movie into your church, you show it, people get saved. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord for that. Then in time, they, they're sitting at home alone one night, they pull their phone out and they say, I wonder, I want to learn more about this Lonnie Frisbee guy. He was really quite the character, this hippie preacher, you know. And they Google Lonnie, and they find out, and I said, here's the thing. You've been a pastor, I've been a pastor for decades. We know as pastors that many people who come to a church, especially those who are not truly believers, and sometimes <laughs> believers, they think that the church is all about money. Churches exist for money. Pastors, it's all about money. The more people, the more money the pastor gets. This is how a lot of people think. I said, so guys like you and me, I said, we try to lean really, really far, and, and we don't talk about money. I said, in our fellowship, we don't take an offering. We don't, we just kind of, we don't play it down. It's an important part. I mean, it's a biblical thing to give us unto the Lord. But we don't make it a big thing because we know for some people, they assume that that's what we're about. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I get that. And I said, kind of another accusation 
that non-believers have about the church is that we sweep our skeletons under the rug. And I said, we were once darkness. Now we are children of light. And I said, anyone, they could do a search. And, and, and what would you do if someone came and said, oh, pastor so-and-so, you know, I came forward. I received the Lord. I'm so thankful that I placed my faith in Christ. But I was doing this Google check, and I didn't realize that this fellow um, went back to homosexuality and he, you know, he was ministering, but also struggling, not struggling so much, really giving in more than struggling to a homosexuality. And he died of AIDS in his forties. I didn't know that. Why didn't they present that in the film? Because that's common knowledge. And I said, that's my concern. We need to be people of light you know, guys, I share this because the film's going to be coming out and people will, you know, probably, you know, they're already coming to pastor. Oh, you got to see, this is your own history, you know. And, and uh, I, you know, I know what our history is and everything. And I believe God could use anyone he wants. But the danger is if we begin to put people on a pedestal and we begin to think that God, because there's a special anointing on someone, that God kind of looks the other way when it comes to some of these other issues in life. And he doesn't. And that's precisely what we're seeing. These people were his people. These were not, you know, these were not the, the foreigners of the land. These were his people. This was his, if you will, offspring. You know what I mean by that. They came from Abram, Abraham. But this, these were his children. And he had expectations for them. And when they began to dabble in this and do this and do that, and we need to understand, guys, that they never turned their back completely on God. When there was a feast, when there was Passover, they celebrated Passover. And that's why the Lord was saying, you can't do this. In fact, you know, as you're going through this, you, you see in... Uh, well, kind of toward the end of chapter 6, from verses 16 on down to uh, like 20, it's like they were substituting obedience for ritual. And, and there are people that kind of think this way, and there are people in the church that think this way. And I'll tell you, you know, none of us are perfect. And none of us would want anyone else to look into the depths of our heart. I wouldn't want you looking into the depths of my heart. I wouldn't want you, you know, you know, seeing the thoughts in my mind all the time. I'm a sinful man. But, you know, there are parameters. As a Christian, I don't want to step out of those parameters. I don't want to say, you know what, I... You know, I've been doing this for a long time. You know, I've been pastoring for a long time. I can do this thing on the side. It really doesn't matter. It does matter. God will not be mocked. As a man sows that, he will also reap. And I believe that's what we should be learning as we're going through Jeremiah and the Old Testament, that God takes these things seriously. You know, God has expectations for us. God has expectations for his servants. 
I, you know, I'm not saying that Lonnie Frisbee wasn't a Christian. I know, I've known a lot of Christians. We've known a lot of Christians over the years that have struggled with things and they've given in to things and everything like that. But ultimately, they come to a place of repentance. They really, I just can't continue this. This thing's got to stop. And I think that sometimes there are folks that are kind of put upon a pedestal and it doesn't matter what they've done. And, and this is what I've concluded in my life. Because as a young man, I had kind of heroes of faith, men that I admired, men that I looked up to, men that as a young Christian, I thought, I want to be like him. I, I Gosh, I want to know the word like he knows the word. And I want to... And the longer I live, you know, you kind of realize that there's a lot of people who kind of fall by the wayside. Again, I'm not saying that they're not saved. I'm not saying that they were faking. I'm just saying that there's just other things in their life, and it just kind of caught up with them, and you just kind of go, man. And that's why I kind of say, I do say quite often, tongue-in-cheek, if they're dead, they're red. Meaning that so often, you know, we could we could like a teacher or pastor or an author or whatever, and then you read their books and you say, oh, this is so wonderful, so wonderful. But, man, as long as they have life, as long as they have breath, they could kind of go sideways. And we need to be people that are following the Lord. We're following the Lord. We're not following men. We're not following women. We're not following anyone else. We're following the Lord. And we're you know, abiding in His Word. And we don't want to look down on people. We don't want to be judgmental. I'm, I hope I'm not coming off that way with Lonnie Frisbee. I'm just simply bringing it to you. I mean, he's been gone for a long time. You know, he died in the early 90s. But, but it just bothers me um, that, that there wasn't the honesty because there's been so many films, there's been so many books written about Lonnie Frisbee and the Jesus movement and all of these types of things. And to be honest, I don't necessarily agree with the history that some people are writing. In essence, they're saying that Lonnie Frisbee was the one who brought all the people to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, that it was the hippie preacher. And you know how I know that's not true? Because Lonnie was only there for a short time. And after Lonnie went, if it was built upon the hippie preacher, Calvary Chapel, because guys, it started with one church. It wasn't a denomination. It's not a denomination. No, it wasn't a movement of churches. It was one church, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa would have ceased to exist. But Calvary Chapel has continued, the movement has continued because of the word of God. There's a book that I read, and I can't. I should have looked at it before I came downstairs. But it's something family, all not all in the family. That's an old sitcom, but it was something like that, you know. And it talked about the Jesus movement. It talked about the what Jesus was doing, Jesus movement, you know, late '60s, early '70s here in Washington and Ohio and Southern California and just you know, in other places around the world and everything. That the Lord was just doing a marvelous work at that time. And as you're going through the book, and it's doing a profile on all these different groups, and it does a profile on Calvary Chapel, and how significant it was, you know, a lot of the contemporary worship, that came out of Calvary Chapel. Now it's just kind of a normal thing. But that came out of the Calvary Chapel church. And, um, but... 
they said all of these groups, all of these movements, they no longer exist. They cease to exist, except for one. And it wasn't written by a Calvary guy. It was just a historian writing about this movement of God, this revival of God that took place in the late 60s and 70s. He says, Calvary Chapel. And he says, the only reason Calvary Chapel continues to this day and it continues to grow is that it's not dependent upon one leader, one man. It's dependent upon the Word of God. Every church is independent. No one has say over any given Calvary Chapel. They are all completely independent. But the ones that stay true to the Word of God, this movement of God continues. And so it doesn't have to have a label, Calvary Chapel or whatever. Guys, it's, don't you want to be in a place, don't you want to be in the middle of the moving of God? Where God is moving in your life and He's doing wonderful things. And He will move in your life, but we need to be obedient to Him. We need to be obedient to Him. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly. (laughs) Saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed the abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. And then we see how they substituted obedience for ritual. And then you get down to verse 26. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth. See, he's saying, repent, repent. Roll about in ashes, make mourning. As for the only son, most bitter lamentation, for the plunder will suddenly come upon you. Lord, would you help us to be a people that hear that whisper of your spirit. Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to be empowered by you. But we want to be humble men and women. That when you use us, we don't want to take glory in ourselves thinking that we're something more than we are. But we want to be a people who glorify you. Would you help us, Lord, to be a people who finish strong, who finish well, I pray for the young people that are in tonight. I pray that you would give them a love for your word. Oh, it will keep them from so much heartache. From dating the wrong people, from marrying the wrong people, from running with the wrong people, from making the the wrong choices, from pursuing things that they shouldn't be pursuing. It will keep them from so much harm. Help us older folks, Lord. Because we've got a lot of bad decisions behind us, but we might have some in front of us as well. We want to finish well. We want to finish strong. We want to be people who hear you say, go this way, don't go there, don't do that. Shut that off. Close that up. 
be obedient to me. Would you help us to love you, Lord? It's not the Bible that we worship. This is your love letter to us. Pray that we'd fall in love with you, the author, the Father, our Savior, our Lord, our Good Shepherd, who always has our best interest at heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.